Hello, I'm David Randall, director of the research for the National Association of Scholars, and uh, welcome to Curriculum Vitae, the podcast of the National Association of Scholars. Um, I'm filling in for our normal host, Peter Wood, the president. Now, our guest today is another NAS, Nathan A. Schachtman. Um, whose legal practice focuses on scientific and statistical evidentiary questions in pharmaceutical, occupational, and environmental cases. He has tried cases and argued appeals throughout the United States, including cases that involved cutting-edge statistical issues. Uh, in 2009, he was appointed as a lecturer at the Columbia Law School, where he has taught statistics in the law, he has lectured and published widely on expert evidence, access to underlying research data, statistical and probabilistic evidence in court, medical legal causation and screenings, and the admissibility of scientific evidence. And in addition to that, he's a public intellectual. He blogs at http uh, colon forward slash forward slash schachtmanlaw.com forward slash blog, um, elected to the American Law Institute and Life Fellow at the American Bar Foundation. This is a long way of saying that he's one of the very few people in the United States who is conversant with the law, science, statistics, and the reproducibility crisis, which is a vast and fascinating issue, which I don't think enough people know about, which is one reason why we've invited Nathan to speak about it. And those are so many issues that I think you, you, you can say something different yourself, but, but I thought the way to start would be, can you tell us about the back legal background, you know, the science law background in which the statistical and the reproducibility crisis issues play out. I think that would be the way to go. Sure, but first I have to disclaim being a public intellectual. Um, Tim Snyder and George Will are public intellectuals. I'm just a, uh, a yeoman lawyer uh, applying my trade in the courtroom uh, and occasionally blogging, which is, uh, if you watched the movie Contagion, you heard that blogs are just graffiti with punctuation. Um, so the, the background on this is that for several centuries, the courts have taken expert evidence. They've taken the opinions of experts to help adjudicate cases, to help resolve conflicts. And historically, the, the criterion by which expert witness was judged, uh, expert witness testimony was judged admissible was simply the expertise of the expert. In other words, if you had a quali if you were qualified to give an opinion, you got to give the opinion, um, no matter how screwy it was. And, um, that really was the law up until the early 1920s when a, um, a trial court decided the case of uh, Fry against the United States, United States against Fry, uh, which uh, held that uh, Mr. Fry, who was being prosecuted for murder, could not introduce um, 
William Marston's lie detector, um, which was based on systolic blood pressure, and they said it just didn't have general acceptance, and therefore uh, they wouldn't admit the uh, interpretation of the of the device or, or the out the reading of the device. Um, and that was sort of a lie in the sand. Basically, the court said if if the um, uh, the testimony involved hasn't gained a sufficient uh, general acceptance in the scientific community, we won't admit it. Uh, but that opinion was never really applied with any force to opinions about medical causation or many other things other than what I will call device testimony. In other words, whether the lie detector uh, results could be introduced into evidence or whether, uh, let's say, radar, uh, radar speed detection could be entered into evidence. And so it tended to play a role in forensic evidence, but not so much in uh, civil litigation. And that was the state of affairs, and it was an unhappy state of affairs, until 1993, when the Supreme Court heard the case of Daubert against Merrill Richardson. Uh, and, and that really changed things. Interestingly and ironically, it was Merrill Richardson which was arguing that Fry should be applied uh, to a, uh, a medical legal case. It was a case involving the birth birth effects uh, supposedly caused by the medication Vendectin, an anti-nausea medication that was very popular in the 1970s and the 1980s, and um, for which there was really very little evidence that it caused birth effects, but there were hundreds and hundreds of cases. Merrill Richardson tried one group of consolidated cases in, uh, in front of Judge Rubin in Ohio, and they won that case. But there were many opt-out cases all around the country. One of them was the Daubert case, and it went up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court uh, sort of, as that court will do sometimes, decided in a way nobody predicted. They said, no, Fry is not the law. It was not incorporated into the federal rules of evidence when they were codified in 1970. But... Um, there was actual language in the rule that they said controlled the outcome of the decision. Uh, and, and we'll talk a little bit about that rule. That rule was Federal Rule of Evidence 702. And they sent it back to the Ninth Circuit, and uh, very famously, Judge Kaczynski wrote the opinion on the remand and uh, and said that uh, the case didn't uh, pass muster. The expert witnesses would not be admissible. But it was an interpretation of a statute, Rule 702, and uh, that statute has been changed over time. So the most recent uh, iteration of the statute now requires several things for an expert witness opinion to be admissible. Um, uh, obviously, the witness still has to be qualified by training, experience, and education. But in addition to qualification, the expert witness must have knowledge that will be helpful to the jury. The witness must have uh, a sufficient uh, basis in facts and data for his opinion. The, um, the expert witness must be using reliable methods 
And finally, uh, he must apply or she must apply those methods reliably to the facts at issue. So I'll sort of stop there and, and just sort of summarize the thing that that statute as amended uh, is from the year 2000, just to put this in historical perspective. The, um, the Fry case was 1923, I believe. And uh, before 1923, there was virtually no control over expert witness testimony. Uh, between 1923 and 2000, there was really very little. That's lovely. And, and I must say, I mean, it's fascinating for me to realize that I lived through something so epical. And I must say, in 1993, I had no idea this was going on. Mind you, I was concentrating for my senior exams <laughs> in college, so I had an excuse. But still, it, it's an astonishing change, you know, in living memory. So I, I want to follow to the next thing then, which is how does statistics play into this, you know, expert testimony framework? Well, in the world of ideas, not, it's not just the law that changed over the course of the 20th century, but it was what I will call the causal paradigm. And what I mean by that um, is that if you go back into cases in the 19th century and the early 20th century, they typically were of the nature of my cow was on the railroad crossing when the train hit it, and the issue was whether the train caused the damage to my cow. And that was a pretty straightforward sort of issue for juries to decide. And it, it invoked a paradigm of causation in which the injury to the cow um, was the effect and the cause was the railroad. And the railroad was both necessary and sufficient to cause the cow's injury. What changed was uh, really mid-century, in about the 1950s, was the emergence of epidemiology, and it, it raised a very different idea of causation. It didn't, didn't replace necessary and sufficient causation, uh, if you're an Aristotelian, but it added a new phenomenon in which a, an event, let's say, a uh, heart attack occurs at a certain rate in the population. It's dependent on age and sex and, and other things. And something, uh, a risk factor of some sort, it could be a medication, it could be a lifestyle uh, or whatever, might change the rate at which heart attacks occur in that group. And the, the upshot is that the, the risk factor is not necessary or sufficient for causing the, the event, heart attacks, in the population. And everybody understands, for instance, that smoking causes lung cancer, except for a few diehards. And the, the thing about lung cancer is that you can get it without being a smoker. So smoking is not necessary. And you can be a smoker and never get lung cancer. So smoking's not sufficient. And there are some people who still have trouble understanding that yet, uh, despite that, that it's neither necessary nor sufficient, smoking causes lung cancer. 
Uh, and how is it established? It was established by using group studies, population studies. And because we have, um, if you're a statistician, uh, you'll resonate to the phrase independent and identically distributed. You have something that occurs uh, at, a, at, a, at a specified rate, uh, and it's one heart attack's independent of the other. And um, but the smoke, but smoking or some other risk factor might change the rate at which it occurs, and and then to understand whether we have a difference in a specific uh, group that has a risk factor, we really have to undertake a statistical analysis. So the very simplest explanation is you flip a coin ten times and you expect five heads, five tails. But the fact of the matter is that most of the time you get something other than five heads, five tails. You get six heads, four tails, four heads, six tails. And you have to ask yourself whether uh, what you're seeing is consistent with the expected value. And statistics allows us to do that. So, so how did statistics then get into, go from science to the law? Well, um, you know, statistics or probabilistic thinking has always had some role in the law, uh, in part because insurance is based on assessing risks, and um, it's a little more straightforward and more simplistic. But the first time that courts started using statistical analyses actually occurred in discrimination cases. Uh, if you go back and you look at some of the Supreme Court decisions on grand jury discrimination and exclusion of African Americans, you know, the cases in the 1940s and the early 1950s involved cases where a, a, a black person had never been on a grand jury in a particular county in Alabama for many decades. So the Supreme Court did not have to do any heavy statistical uh, analysis to, to understand that there was discrimination. But uh, moving into the 1960s, there were closer cases. And so, um, you know, if we dichotomize the population, which was a reasonable thing to do back in the 1960s, into black and white, uh, it's probably not a reasonable thing to do today. Um, we could ask, well, what is the base rate uh, of blacks in the jury pool in, in the county and ask, what is the probability of seeing so few blacks on a grand jury uh, or fewer, uh, given that they should have been selected uh, at the rate in which they're present in the population? So it was a fairly straightforward application of statistical analysis in discrimination cases. Um, one of them, uh, you have to forgive me, I'm blanking on the dates, but I would say that that process took place between 1960 and 1975, the emergence of statistical analyses. Um, and it was actually uh, spearheaded by my predecessor at Columbia, Michael Finkelstein, who after coming out of Harvard Law School, went into the EEOC, uh, and Michael had been a, uh, a math major at Harvard as an undergraduate, um, 
and he started using that kind of analysis to uh, press the um, uh, the EEOC's prosecutions. Uh, when he came out, he started the course at Columbia uh, that I later on inherited. But so discrimination law was really the first beneficiary of statistical thinking. But very soon thereafter, uh, the upright, the rising of epidemiology in analysis, in an, excuse me, in analyzing causal claims uh, inherently invoke statistical analysis. In other words, if you expected uh, so many lung cancers from a population of, of smokers based on the general population, and the rate was 20 times greater than what you expected, you still had to ask yourself, what was the probability of seeing so many uh, more lung cancers than expected, um, or, or, or at least as many as we observed, and, and that required a statistical analysis. Um, now, the, the numbers were so obvious in the case of lung cancer and smoking that perhaps uh, statistical analysis wasn't absolutely necessary in many cases, but when we started getting to other kinds of epidemiologic studies uh, where the increased rates of uh, whatever the disease of interest was was more like maybe 10% or 50% or 100%, uh, then statistical analysis became absolutely necessary. So this would be, say, in the 1970s, 1980s, that you would start getting large numbers of statistically trained experts in the courtrooms? Yeah, in the health in the health effects litigation, that's true. I would say that in the race discrimination and sex discrimination cases, it may have been a decade earlier. And um, it just so happened that I started practicing law in, in 1984. I, I was in a clerkship with a judge uh, from 1982 to 1983, uh, a judge who um, actually had been um, in the Navy before going to law school. He was trained in Annapolis. He was an engineer, and um, he took statistics very seriously, and many of his decisions involved the application of uh, a statistical analysis to race discrimination claims. Um, and so I had that as a background, but by the time I started taking cases, I realized that there were very serious statistical issues in the cases before me, and the witnesses who were testifying had no idea what they were saying. Okay, that's actually my segue. I mean, in fact, the strengths and weaknesses of statistics as they emerge, I guess even, I mean, this is sort of leading to the repl replication crisis, but maybe it can be broader than that. What were the strengths? What were the weaknesses? And, and I guess, and then particularly, how precisely was the statistics playing out in the law as distinct from other areas of, you know, science, public policy, etc.? That's a lot. Yeah, it is, is a lot. I'll try to narrow it a bit by focusing on the kinds of cases that I litigated in, in the mid-1980s. Um, I started with a firm uh, in 1984, and I remember sitting across from the partner who said, you know, 
Uh, if you come with us, you'll probably try a few asbestos cases, but don't worry because Dean Wellington, the dean of Yale Law School, has this great idea for how the whole litigation can be resolved and turned into an administrative process. Um, and, and I took the bait, uh, and I spent the next eight years trying asbestos cases, uh, many of which were cancer cases in which plaintiffs claimed that they had developed a cancer as a result of their occupational or, or environmental asbestos exposure. And those cases, in turn, turned on epidemiologic studies. So we had the, uh, the 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 sad show of pulmonary physicians coming into court uh, with no training in statistics, relying on studies that they I mean they could read the conclusions you know these were in medical journals but they really couldn't go past the authors say so. And um, they, they, they would be totally helpless at finding mistakes or over-interpretations. Um, and um, I, I'm not going to say I was the only defense lawyer, but I was one who started challenging experts um, over whether they really understood what it was they were relying upon and whether what they relied upon was really reliable and sound science. So I, this, I guess, gets into, you know, I guess, the nature of medicine and re re relying multiple expertises. Um, I, I, I guess that's one question I might want to follow, but when did you start to come across experts who were actually then trained statisticians who could respond cogently? Well, um, I think the, well, first of all, I, I probably encountered people who had some claim to expertise, um, but who probably were not seriously trained statisticians. They may, I'm thinking of the late William Nicholson, who worked with Irving Selikoff at Mount Sinai. On the plaintiff side, there were experts I worked with who may have had an MPH and uh, who may have taught epidemiology at a medical school. And when I go back and I look at their reports on both sides, plaintiffs and defendants from the 1980s, I'm a bit horrified at what they were doing in terms of uh, their sophistication. I certainly have learned uh, a lot since that period. Um, but I would say by the end of the 1980s, uh, with the advent of meta-analysis, I started to see witnesses who had much more serious statistical credentials. Instead of being an epidemiologist, they were they had a PhD in statistics, or if they were epidemiologists, they had much more serious training. Um, and, and so it was very much a moving target. Things were evolving both in the academy and in the courtroom. And you and I and the businesses themselves, I gather, needed to sort of muscle up on the statisticians to you know provide their defense, is what you're saying. Well, that's right. I, I think that uh, we were willing, you know, when it when it was 
smoking and lung cancer, it wasn't a very challenging uh, body of epidemiology uh, for the plaintiffs or the defendants. But when we started to get into uh, much more subtle effects, where the magnitude of the associations were much smaller, uh, it required uh, much more careful analyses. And to give you an example of what I mean by that, if you were studying, for instance, uh, whether uh, asbestos caused esophageal cancer, um, well, you would have to make sure that the studies involved were multivariate. They had to have, they had to look at not just asbestos and, and as an exposure and esophageal cancer as an outcome, they had to look at whether the uh, people who developed disease were smokers, whether they had gastroesophageal reflux disorder, uh, whether they had family histories. So there were multiple variables that had to be analyzed and the uh, statistical analysis that would incorporate those multiple variables were inherently more complex. What are the consequences, and I, I guess particular cases in the 1990s, of experts you know, not being expert, what are the consequences for actual cases, precedents, law? You know? Well, the, um, the, the qualification bar is still very low, uh, both in state and federal court. Uh, judges are reluctant to disqualify witnesses expert witnesses, but uh, when a witness testifies outside his or her uh, professional domain and it's really obvious, uh, you may get the attention of the judge uh, and get the judge to limit the scope of the proffered testimony. Um, but the real change came with the Daubert decision itself with a willingness for the for the trial judge to serve as a gatekeeper and irrespective of the qualifications, uh, whether the expert, you know, went to good schools, was well published and the like, um, the judge was now obligated to look at the substance of the testimony. And, and believe me, this was a, uh, most judges regarded this with absolute horror, uh, that they could not use a proxy for the validity of the testimony in the qualifications. They actually had to look at the validity of the data and the analyses themselves. And uh, to this day, there's still tremendous judicial resistance to the whole enterprise. But when it goes well, the um, the judge has to uh, look at these factors and uh, the, the judge has resources at his or her command in the form of independent experts, uh, court-appointed advisors, um, and just the adversarial process. But uh, it, it's a daunting process, and I, to some extent, I'm a little sympathetic for the judges. But you know, they get to go to work every day in, in their black nightshirt, so uh, not too sympathetic. Do you think, by the way, that when Daubert was passed, that the people who passed it realized what a burden they were placing on the justices, judges? Absolutely, they did. Um, uh, at the time, 
1993 when the Supreme Court decided the case. Um, well, let, let me roll back to the 1970s when the rule was enacted by by the Congress. I, I don't think they fathomed the significance of the kind of gatekeeping that would be required down the road. When the Supreme Court decided the Daubert case in 1993, there was a dissent in part by then Chief Justice Rehnquist, uh, who said something like, you know, I am second to none in my admiration for the intelligence and the diligence of trial judges, but I don't think they're going to understand, you know, this business of reproducibility and um, and the various criteria that the majority, speaking through Justice Blackmun, laid down. Uh, I should say that uh, Justice Blackmun had been a math major uh, as an undergraduate at Harvard College, and so he had a little bit of a leg up and maybe higher expectations of the federal trial bench than did uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist. But it was very much an issue and dispute. But but Justice Chief Justice Rehnquist was a, a fast learner, and uh, a few years later, in a case known as General Election against Joyner, uh, he wrote the opinion, and it was a fairly close analysis of the scientific evidence, um, and he ultimately led a reversal of the 11th Circuit in that case uh, for very glibly uh, saying that the trial judge had overstepped her bounds in excluding expert witnesses for, for doing exactly what she was supposed to do, looking at whether the experts in that case had reliably uh, applied uh, the methods to the data at hand. Um, it was after that case, uh, General Electric against Joyner and one more, uh, Kumho Tire against uh, Carmichael, that uh, the Rules Committee decided to update the rule to incorporate the learning of those later cases, and Congress approved that. Uh, amendment in, in the year 2000. So, yeah, it, it was understood that there was a very significant uh, charge being given to the trial judges uh, to be amateur scientists. And after all, juries are expected to listen to the substantive evidence and come to a conclusion. There are many people who said, oh, you know, trial judges are not uh, appropriately trained for this. And that is correct in some respects, but then again, jurors are even less so. Wow. I'm going to want to get to back to that, but um, I guess, I mean, so we're in the Daubert regime. We have statisticians being used, statistics being used, sometimes unreliably. I guess, how do we get from there to the reproducibility crisis and its effects on the law? Well, the what you're calling the irreproducibility crisis, or the reproducibility crisis, or the replication crisis, um, emerged independently of the law. I mean, the law had always struggled with uh, shaky evidence, and uh, or I should say, shaky opinions based upon shakier evidence. And uh, it's the very nature of a legal case that if it goes to the jury, the judge has decided that 
there are two conflicting views that the jury has to resolve. So uh, we lawyers are not strangers to uh, you know conflicts in the evidence or uh, differing interpretations. But I, I do think that something else uh, emerged in the 1980s and 90s, and that was a loss of confidence in the actual studies on which expert witnesses were relying upon in court. And certainly it also had an independent life as loss of confidence in these studies and how people interpreted them in in both the scientific communities and the general, you know, uh, polity of our country. So I think it, it, the, the two things, the fact that there were cases based upon such weak evidence and judges were struggling uh, to deal with expert witness opinion that had turned on cherry picking of studies and uh, when studies could be found on both sides of an issue had a an analog as it were in, in the real world not the, the shadow world of the courtroom and um, and people became concerned about why is it that these studies uh, disagree now in part, I don't think that just because studies disagree, there's a huge problem. I, I, I think that, uh, I mean, to give you the most obvious example, sometimes uh, studies are being done at a lower level in the hierarchy of evidence. So there was a time when people thought that vitamin A, alpha tocopherol, um, not, 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 uh, I, I apologize, not alpha tocopherol, but, um, uh, vitamin A prevented or would help prevent lung cancer. And there were many observational studies to suggest that this was so. And then there were some very nicely designed randomized clinical trials that were done in high-risk populations that showed, if anything, um, administering vitamin A uh, increased the risk of lung cancer in the people receiving the vitamin. And so, um, you know, it, it just pointed out the obvious that observational studies get trumped by um, randomized clinical trials. They're just a higher order of evidence, more rigorous and less subject to confounding and biases. Um, and, and that's happened in any number of fields, and it's the reason why we don't allow drugs to be approved on the basis of observational studies that require clinical trials. Um, so that's just like one example, but we, we there are times when the first study out of the box is a plausible study, but we understand that uh, the study design will be refined, questions will be raised, it's sort of a dialectical process among scientists, and the, the, the problem there may be that some people overinterpret individual studies, and it, it's their synthesis of evidence that is subject to, uh, to doubt or, or, or suspicion. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with the studies themselves. You know, there are some defense lawyers who will say, oh, case studies, you know, individual case studies are, are not scientific. And I think that's wrong. Case studies are part of the scientific process. But there are terrible bases for 
reaching a conclusion of causation, uh, you know, on those alone. And uh, so I think we have to look at a more, we have to have a more refined analysis of what is, what we're complaining about when we complain about the reproducibility or irreproducibility of studies. So, in fact, I, mean, I guess so, is in questions of your reproducibility and then in fact, has a, a study been designed properly so as to be reproduced? Has the result actually been reproduced? Was this becoming a standard part of the legal arguments back and forth, shall we say, in the course of the you know, 2000s and thereafter? Well, even in, in, in the Daubert case itself, um, there was a suggestion that one factor the trial judge should use was whether the study had been peer-reviewed. Um, now, re peer-reviewed doesn't mean reproducible, not by a long shot. I think the crisis you're referring to takes place among peer-reviewed studies. But um, at the very least, the study should get some kind of preview in the professional community. Uh, I think today we realize that the really significant review is post-publication review, not, not pre-publication peer review. Um, but um, I think that the courts inconsistently recognize uh, the importance of pre-specifying the criteria for quality studies. Um, and what that means is, in practice, is that expert witnesses on both sides on occasion will cherry pick. They, it's very easy to come up with post hoc explanations for why one study is no good or this study is, is, is you know, just wonderful and is dispositive of the issue. Um, and really what has become the state of the art is a systematic review process in which experts pre-specify what their criteria are for acceptable or admissible studies and then review and then go out and collect all the uh, potentially uh, uh, admissible studies and uh, and then analyze them and um, and then there are some sensitivity analyses that need to be done to see whether your out your decision would be different if you had included the studies that you're excluding um, and I, I think it's become a more rigorous process but only in the last 10 or 15 years so so I, so I guess then for like the current status quo and and I, I guess I'm, I also want to ask about a little bit later about like some of the effects of attempts to deal with the reproducibility crisis like the American Statistical Association statement because that's very important but before we get there and in fact the status quo as it's emerged by the last 10 or 15 years what are the strengths and what are the weaknesses? Uh, I'm sorry, of what? Of I, How well of is, how, is judiciary uh, dealing with the subtleties of reproducibility and statistics and science? Are there characteristic things going right? Are there characteristic things going wrong? Is there a wonderful and spectacular example you can give of how it might go wrong? Sure. I, I, I think that... Um, the, the largest problems are institutional. Um, judges are just not 
trained for this and frequently don't want to acknowledge the limitations of their uh, acumen and uh, with respect to analyzing the issues. And uh, when they see uh, highly qualified expert witnesses on both sides, uh, they're inclined to punt. Um, and I think that that is a weakness. Um, I think they find it very difficult to engage with the actual evidence. And it's exacerbated by the adversarial system. You have lawyers on both sides who are very good at, you know, uh, marshalling arguments uh, about why some studies, you know, should be downgraded or not considered at all. Um, but I, I've seen in my day uh, a fair amount of irresponsible and um, incorrect analysis being proffered up in the context of motions to exclude uh, expert witnesses or, or in opposition to those motions. And I can give you an example that came up and I blogged about it only recently and it was on the defense side. And the defense lawyers uh, argued that um, a meta-analysis of two clinical trials was inappropriate and violated the reliability requirement of Dalbert because each study standing alone had not reached a statistically significant outcome. Um, and they suggested it was improper to combine those two studies and uh, take away a statistically significant summary uh, outcome and then rely on that. Well, that really just totally misses the whole point of doing a meta-analysis. You may very well have had insignificant or insufficient power in the individual trials, and you do the meta-analysis to overcome that insufficiency. Um, and, I mean, the defense lost in that case. They actually had a much better argument, and, and the bad argument detracted, I think, from their better argument that the two studies should not have been combined because they looked at different things. They actually looked at combinations of drugs, and each of the two studies looked at different combinations of drugs. And I, I don't know that it would have gone better with that particular trial judge, but I throw that out there as an example of sort of the blind leading the blind, uh, the bar leading the bench here uh, down a path of uh, error. Uh, they probably were preordained to lose their motion, but it was not, in my view, a very uh, inspiring sight to see defense lawyers, and I've been mostly on the defense side, uh, make these uh, Rather bogus arguments, uh, and then only, and then to see the good argument ignored by the court, and we got a bad decision based on bad briefs uh, all around. So that, so that's just one aspect of uh, the problem is an institutional competency issue. I think there are other issues as well. Um, our expert witnesses uh, sometimes overly zealous. Yes. Uh, are the studies on which they rely um, poorly done or poorly interpreted in ways that are bound to mislead both scientists and lay people? And the answer, I believe, is yes. And we can talk about that. Um, as a for instance, 
if you accept my explanation of epidemiology looking at causal risk factors that are neither necessary nor sufficient, um, we realize that the most we could ever say is that a particular exposure or lifestyle increased the risk of a particular outcome. We wouldn't say, I mean, that is causation. But it, we, that's how it would be said. And certainly on the basis of a single study, scientists should not say that the exposure factor that was being studied increased the risk. They, they, they could say that it was associated with an increased rate. Um, but the phrase increased the risk is actually an expression of causation, and it would be inappropriate from a single study to express that. But if you go into the epidemiologic literature, uh, you will see studies do just that. They will overclaim uh, what they have found when all they really have found is they expected a rate of you know a certain number of cases per 100,000. They observed, uh, after correcting for covariates, um, a, a, a slightly greater rate uh, in the uh, exposed population as opposed to the control population, and they shouldn't say anything more. Um, you know, further affiant saith not. Uh, but uh, scientists become very invested in their hypotheses, and uh, many scientists see the courtroom as a way to vindicate their science to get a public, uh, you know, one of the three branches of government to say, oh, yes, you know, uh, and I'm just picking an example here, glyphosate causes uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, you know, even though they can't get any scientific organization to say it. Uh, and it's gratifying to them to have that kind of uh, support and uh, corroboration of their opinions. Okay, so I'm going to go back to something that I said mentioned a minute ago, two minutes ago, uh, the American Statistical Association 2016 statement. Which, I mean, for, for our viewers, so you don't have to say all of this, our listeners, um, this was a, a response to the reproducibility crisis. In effect, the American Statistical Association going out and saying, you need, here is the way you ought to be using statistics in a variety of other disciplines, not least with an eye to the fact that there's far too many irreproducible results coming out. Uh, well, assuming I've got this summarized properly, consequences for the law of that statement coming out. Well, the, the consequences were significant. As soon as it came out, the what we're calling the ASA, the American Statistical Association statement from 2016, was cited uh, frequently, usually by plaintiffs' counsel, um, and I think mistakenly so. Um, the 2016 statement uh, consisted of six principles. I, um, perhaps we can link to it on, on the website. Um, it's freely downloadable from the uh, ASA's website. It's a fairly anodyne statement of 
what the so-called p-value is and what statistical significance means. Um, and I don't think that there was very much objectionable about it to anyone. It was it came out of a consensus conference. Uh, there was unhappiness on, on the part of some that it didn't go farther and basically relegate um, statistical significance testing to the dustbin of um, statistical history. But um, the plaintiffs argued in briefs starting in 2016, as soon as the report came out, that the American Statistical Association had uh, held that uh, statistical significance was not important. And that's not at all what it said. It said the uh, a low p-value was not the only consideration in uh, judging uh, the reliability and the soundness of a statistical study, and there's nothing, you know, wrong with that. Um, there's a, another principle, principle number four, which the plaintiffs disregarded and is crucial to your concern, I think, uh, about reproducibility. And it, principle four has to do with what we, we call sometimes multiple testing or multiplicity of analyses. The p-value uh, was really designed for a single outcome uh, in a study. Now, the way that observational epidemiology is done today, um, just for efficiency alone, if you're doing a large cohort, like the uh, Harvard Nurses Health Study, you're following these nurses for decades. Expensive process. You have to send out inter you know survey forms every once in a while. You have to do examinations. It's expensive. It's time consuming. It can take a lifetime to do a prospective study like that. Um, well, of course you're going to look at many many different outcomes. You know, you're comparing the nurses uh, with a control population, and um, you may be looking at, uh, well, just to give you an example, if you go to the International Classification of Disease Codebook, there are thousands and thousands of diseases. Um, it's enough to make you sick when you, when you see how many diseases there are. Um, well, when you're doing a cohort like that, you're coding every possible outcome. And then you're doing an analysis. So it will be an analysis for breast cancer and ovarian cancer and, um, you know, and lymphomas and leukemias. And gosh, it's amazing that people survive at all. But, um, but the problem is that you didn't pre-specify one outcome. You, you chose to look at dozens and dozens of outcomes. In fact, you actually may have looked at hundreds or thousands, but only reported on a dozen or so that were the more interesting ones. Well, when you do that, your statistical, your, your control of the p-value is totally lost. And the meaning of the p-value is disintegrates. And, and yet, that's how epidemiology is largely done today. Now, what that allows you to do, if you were so inclined, is to go out into the literature and find studies that support your contention. And you will find them. Uh, why? Because, you know, one study looked at 100 different cancers and 
you know, let's say you're claiming asbestos causes colorectal cancer. Well, you'll find a study where colorectal cancer rates are up and you just ignore the ones where it's down. And the, the, the confidence interval or the p-value that's reported in that study is meaningless because they looked at opportunistically at dozens if not hundreds of outcomes. Um, and the ASA statement basically says, stop it. Um, and that has largely been ignored. <laughs> wow. And then, is this worse? Is this ignoring, would you say, worse in epidemiology than in other fields? Or would you want to be cautious about that? Well, I, I, I want to be cautious because I'm not immersed in psychology or sociology or, you know, what I spend a, a great deal of my time doing is looking at biomedical studies. Right. Um, but I will say that uh, in, in animal toxicology, I see it abused quite a bit, and I certainly see it abused in epidemiology. And I want to be careful here to say that I don't think it's wrong to opportunistically look at every outcome in a cohort. What is wrong is not to report the full extent of the comparisons, and it's also wrong to report the p-value or the confidence interval without a correction or without a qualification that its usual meaning can't be inferred because of the extent of the multiple testing. Um, and there's been a, a, some movement um, in the better journals. I know the New England Journal of Medicine has changed its um, uh, publication rules, you know, its guidances for authors. Uh, but most journals haven't budged, and they're still doing business the way they've always done it. This is sort of making me want to shift slightly to actually sort of a question about education. But before I do that, was there more you wanted to say on, you know, the whole legal aspect centrally before I like butterfly a little? Okay. Well, there was one other thing I wanted to point out, and that is that in May 19, last year, the people thought it was the ASA issued another statement in which they said it's time to put statistical significance to bed. And um, and, it, and the reason why people thought it was an ASA statement is that its principal author was um, uh, Ron Wasserstein, who is the executive director of the ASA. But after a lot of back and forth, it became clear that uh, Dr. Wasserstein was uh, holding forth as an individual and not in any official capacity. And uh, the ASA has made that clear now. And um, so I, I would have expected uh, plaintiff's counsel to have used that, but I think that that little, uh, that, the foot of that stool has been put away. Okay. And I better go get another phone because I think this one is running out of juice. Can you hear me? I can hear you, and I will speak in case we continue to record this for posterity, although it may be okay. edited out. Okay. Let me just grab another phone. Lovely. <laughs> well, welcome to the Queen's Dominion. <laughs> yes. Um, hold on. Okay. 
I, I'm sure Chance will do his job here and cut this out. Oh, no? We have three phones in the house, and oh, they're all portable, and they tend to migrate. Hello? Hello, yes. Okay, you got me. Lovely. All right, I'm going back to my screen. Okay, uh, we were talking about the 2019 statement, and then you asked me a question, and I lost the train of thought there. Oh, well, let's see, well, legal, well, the legal effects, and I think you said, in fact, I, you were probably afraid that the 2019 statement might have a legal effect, but I think you're thinking that may not happen. Well, I, I think not. Um, what, what, what Ken and his colleagues wrote in 2019 was that um, we should do away with statistical significance, and they suggested that doing so would somehow improve the irreproducibility uh, problem in, in various disciplines. Um, I disagree. Um, and I think you know from our conference uh, in Oakland, uh, which was a great success, by the way. I, I mean, it was, you just had a, a great collection of diverse and interesting people. Uh, with, with Wasserstein presenting and Deborah Mayo, Professor Mayo presenting, um, I think it will exacerbate um, overclaiming because it, it takes away at least one fairly quantifiable and rigorous way of assessing uh, the validity of an outcome. It's not the only way. Um, unfortunately, there aren't often good ways of quantifying other kinds of errors, you know, systematic errors and biases in a study. But at least we, especially for experiments uh, like randomized clinical trials or animal toxicology, if we use the tool correctly, we have a very powerful way of uh, checking on whether we're willing to acknowledge this is something beyond chance uh, in, its, in its occurrence. Okay. Um, so I, as I say, well, so, so I was, of course, having this like a force drive uh, narrative, um, you know, through the present on the law, you know, statistics and reproducibility. Um, from what you were saying at various points, it struck me that, you know, one of the answers is, you know, what is to be done? And it kept on coming back to, in effect, proper for lawyers and judges. But I guess I, I just wanted to frame it first. I, it seems to me that what you're saying is, we have a significantly new regime in the law that developed in the 1980s and 1990s having to do with the introduction of well heavy-duty statistics and the Daubert rule that together they impose significant new burdens of knowledge on lawyers, judges, and juries alike. It's not that the system is failing but that it imposes a lot and you can have erratic results sometimes i mean i gather you know particular cases might be you know, millions of dollars at stake and that there is enough strain on the system that something should be done to make it better and I, it, it sounded as if education of the various participants was something you were for am i speaking too much in your voice 
No, I, I think you've caught the gist of where I was going. I, I, I don't think you can educate jurors. Um, I mean, you can, and you can try, and I generally find juries to be better fact-finders than judges. But um, there are two things missing, and one of that, one thing missing is that juries get to decide cases and they don't have to explain why they decided it a certain way. It's a black box of sorts. The second thing is they have no continuity with the case or, or with other cases. And, you know, there's, I've been very lucky. I've tried cases where I've had engineers or pharmacists or, or statisticians on my jury. So uh, I've had sometimes more expertise in the jury box than I did at the bench. Hmm. Um, so I don't want to you know, denigrate juries, but they are a very erratic uh, player in, in the process. Uh, as are judges who are not trained to be gatekeepers. They don't, you know, most lawyers go to law school. Most judges have been lawyers and most uh, people who go to law school were history or English majors. Uh, occasionally you have a political science major with who, who may have had to have, uh, you know, a course uh, using SBSS to analyze election data or something like that. But um Typically, not so much. Uh, most law students, uh, even though they have to do well on their uh, math SAT in order to get into a good college, and then there are uh, analytical reasoning skills tested on the LSAT, nonetheless, when it comes to math, uh, most law students fall off the bus. And uh, I think that's a big problem, and I think law schools need to ramp up either by making a, um, a statistics course a prerequisite, and, and I know that's an anathema to most law schools to have prerequisites, uh, or to provide it in the, in the process of a three-year law school education. Um, there are ways of providing the education to judges. Um, I've given lectures for the American Law Institute, uh, and uh, I know the Federal Judicial Center uh, has one of its missions uh, to educate judges uh, to remedy their educational defects when it comes to some of these technical issues. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the institutional side of it. But there's also a... a Part of the problem that is outside the law, uh, and we touched on it in terms of, you know, how studies are written up and how they're interpreted. Uh, and there are other issues that are real issues in the irreproducibility crisis, uh, which we can talk about. Uh, and they do enter into the courtroom because, um, you know, once something gets published in a peer-reviewed journal, uh, most judges eyes just cloud over and they're unwilling to really go beyond the um, the four corners of the published article. Well, so, so I guess you, you were saying other issues. I mean, so what, would you want to like go into detail about more of them then? Yeah, well, yeah, very quickly. Um, the way publication works in most journals um, in the biomedical field anyway, is that you just see an article, you know, and you don't, you don't get the underlying data. Um, the peer reviewers did not see the underlying data. Uh, 
we don't know what the protocol looks like. So most studies should have a protocol. The, the authors should say, this is what we are going to do. This is what we think we're, the kind of data we're going to get. This is the kind of statistical analysis we think we're going to perform. Um, and inquiring minds would like to know whether that got changed in midstream. Uh, because again, it raises the multiple comparisons issue. If, you know, you set out to do one analysis and that analysis didn't look so good, but, you know, you found a, a secondary analysis that looked better and you made that to be the primary analysis in your published paper, you, you basically have engaged in an act of deception to the scientific community. And sadly, that, that happened. Um, so I think that the standard of care could well be improved for the scientific publishing world. And I, I think those are two ways, uh, by making protocols and statistical analyses plans, something that are pre-specified and almost sacrosanct. Um, but also I think that there is uh, an, a complete aversion to sharing data. Uh, everybody is in favor of sharing other people's data. Uh, they're not so much in favor of sharing their own. And uh, you see this, um, critics of the pharmaceutical industry uh, criticize Big Pharma for doing clinical trials and not sharing the underlying data, uh, or if they don't get their drug to market, not making uh, the clinical trial results available at all. And it, it results in wasteful and perhaps, uh, you know, wasting another clinical trial, which raises ethical issues and the like. Uh, but it happens, you know, on the other side when um, people say, you know, the EPA is going to uh, regulate a certain uh, pollutant and, uh, and People ask to see the underlying data uh, on the health, on the alleged health effects, and all of a sudden, it's you know you're harassing the the experts, you're harassing the investigators, and you're you know you're just engaging in manufacturing doubt. And uh, I, I think both sides are really in bad faith here. I think all sides need to come to grips in terms with sharing underlying data. And it requires planning from the get-go. You you know, once you do the study and you've got everybody's, you know, name and Social Security there, you, it takes a lot of time to redact it. And so there should be set in motion at the beginning of a study a process by which the personal identifiers can be redacted and the data can be shared with other investigators, including including people who are going to attack your study. You know, just get over it. Yeah. Um, can one make a reasonable formal change to the laws, the regulations of scientific evidence in the judiciary to take account of these? Or is it more, is the existing law adequate? It just requires better, you know, informal preparation, you know, preparation of the judges and so forth. Well, I can tell you that, I mean, I, I, I think it does require better preparation of the judges, and um, but it is difficult, not impossible, but difficult to obtain underlying data 
from studies using legal processes uh, like subpoenas and requests to produce. It, it goes a little better if the expert witness who is called by the other side is actually the author of a study because now he's he's had privileged access to the underlying data of a study on which he's claiming reliance. But sometimes it's a third party, an independent party, uh, you know, as we lawyers call it, a stranger to the litigation who doesn't want to have to be burdened or bothered by sharing the data. And I've been in, in that situation where I subpoenaed data from a stranger to the litigation. And the resistance from university counsel is ferocious. Uh, and the claims of harassment and, and the like fly. But I think um, I, there are examples where it has been has changed the course of a litigation. And so I think if you have a, a case or a group of cases and billions of dollars are at stake, it behooves you to, uh, to seek uh, the underlying data. There's a case going on now involving Zofran, a medication, where one of the studies um, was written by somebody who turned out to have very close ties to the plaintiff's bar. And uh, uh, GlaxoSmithKline pushed hard to obtain the underlying data, and uh, they did. And I think the study will no longer be a, a factor, at least in regulation or, or in the litigation involved. So you, so do you think one could then you know, redo the regulations to require underlying data in certain circumstances, you know, without this having so many you know untold negative consequences that it would be a disaster? Well, um, <laughs> I, I would like to see the scientific community get to this voluntarily. Right. Um, I, I don't know that I, I want lawyers dictating to scientists how they should go about doing their business. Uh, I should say that in one subpoena contest I was involved in, it resulted in the um, the scientist and his legal counsel writing an editorial in the journal Neurology criticizing me for having served the subpoena. And um, it got to the attention of the National Academies of Science now, now the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine, uh, not to be confused with the National Association of Scholars by any means. And, or um, Nathan A. Schachtman. Or with me. And uh, I was requested to participate in a discussion and a debate with the uh, the author of the editorial, uh, who was the subject of my subpoena. And um, he, he was from Washington University, St. Louis. So I ended my, uh, my presentation to the committee by saying, you know, the doctor is from Missouri. Show me the data. Okay. <laughs> How persuasive were you to them, by the way? What's that? Were you able to persuade them of your side of the case? Well, they thought they needed to do something based upon the editorial. They thought that this was a serious abuse that I, as a lawyer, had inflicted upon this 
sincere scientists. And I think at the end of our presentation, they decided not to do anything. So um, I wasn't condemned. I wasn't criticized. Um, and, and no untoward action was taken by the committee. I want to shift back to that education thing, because I mean, look, this is the National Association of Scholars. We care about education. You've been in the classroom teaching uh, statistics and the law. What's it like? I mean, you know, that, that's a sort of a leading question, but I mean, we can talk about, um, you know, you must require a class, but how actually does such a class work? What, what are the good parts of it? What, what, what are the difficulties? Well, I, I think that statistical analysis of whether it's frequentist or Bayesian is really a, a wonderful field of applied mathematics. I, I just think it's, it is a certain beauty of um, involved that maybe not everybody sees or shares, but um, I, I personally believe that no one should get through a four-year university without taking at least one university-level math course. Um, but it's somewhat frustrating. Uh, I'll, I'll say that law students are anxious about grades and performance, and they are sometimes timid about putting themselves out to take a course that they think they may not be naturally good at. Um, they're good writers. You know, they can sit down and write a narrative essay uh, on the rules of decision, applying it to a, a, a factual hypothetical and come up with a, an answer. And, you know, that's what they do and that's what they like to do. And that's what they're going to be doing uh, for most of their career. But if they're going to practice in the regulatory arena in front of OSHA or EPA or the FDA, or if they're going to be litigating uh, products liability cases, especially pharmaceutical products cases, or if they're even doing medical malpractice, or if they're litigating discrimination cases, they're going to have to uh, select, prepare, and present statistician expert witnesses. They're going to have to understand it well enough, not just to present a witness who will be in control of the expertise, but they're going to have to cross-examine adversary expert witnesses. And, you know, that's a can be a humiliating prospect if you are going up against an expert who understands a whole language, a whole set of concepts that are foreign to you, and, 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 you know, ultimately what happens is that the expert will just evade your questions or dance on your head, and um, it's, it's not a pretty experience, and uh, it, it behooves the lawyer on either side to develop a certain substantive expertise in order to do his or her job. Hmm. Actually, this actually makes me think of something else. You mentioned jury selection. I don't know, I don't know if you're allowed to say this. Do you look for people who have more statistical expertise in jury trials? Well, it's not something that is common enough to... Um, uh, be on the lookout for, you know. It, um, I, I mentioned that I once had a, 
engineer on a jury and uh funny experience um the um in that courtroom jurors were permitted to ask questions and there was one study result relied upon by the plaintiff's expert where the p-value was reported as equal to 0.05 and um I don't know why it was reported that way. Uh, if it's a continuous distribution, you can't have it equal to that number. It has to be equal to or less than. So it, it might even have been a typographical error. But the engineer picked up on it and asked the question. And um, he asked the uh, witness, and the judge allowed this question. Um, you said that the result was statistically significant, but you, the chart you put up showed the p-value was equal to 0.05, and I thought it had to be less than 0.05, and the expert witness wasn't well enough versed in statistics to give the appropriate answer, which is that, well, in fact, it would have been less than uh, 5% uh, because it can't actually be equal to 5% because there's no area under the, you know, the exact point probability. And and he totally flubbed it. And um, this was a very serious case involving a hemorrhagic stroke and a very large claim for damages. And we won that case. Uh, I don't know that that was the dispositive event, but it certainly was a lovely experience. And very unusual, I should say. Interesting. So, um, oh golly. So, I guess I mean it's, it's related then, you know, for this education. So, how many I, lawyers do you suppose had you know, a, a sufficient knowledge of statistics circa 1985, and how many do now, and how many do we need? I mean, other than all of them, I suppose. Um. You know, I, I don't honestly know. I hope that I've improved the number somewhat uh, by teaching the course I did at Columbia. I know that a similar course is taught elsewhere. Uh, unfortunately, in some schools, it's taught as quantitative method. So you have two or three credit course in which uh, decision theory, accounting, uh, various other quantitative methods are considered besides statistics. And quite frankly, it, it, that's not enough for the statistics portion of it. Harvard has stopped offering statistics at the law school, but they encourage people who are interested to take the undergraduate course at Harvard College, and they will give them law school credit for it. Um, in, in my field of um, product liability and, and regulatory and, and food and drug law, um, I would say there are a dozen, maybe two dozen people I know who, who operate at a high level, uh, but most people are really in the dark, most lawyers. Is there something to be, the way law firms search for young associates, I mean, should their search practices also be altered to somehow place more emphasis on, you know, you're a junior lawyer coming in and really help for you to have this sort of knowledge? 
Yeah, and I think they do. I think they try anyway. I know that the firm that I'm uh, of counsel to recently hired um, a young associate who uh, has a PhD in neuropsychology. Um, I, I think that those kind of dual degrees are immensely helpful. You, you know, there was a time when... Um, you could become a law professor simply by doing very well in law school, going out and practicing for a year, and then coming back to the academy. But nowadays, most law professors have dual degrees. They have a PhD in something and a JD as well. Uh, and the PhD, surprisingly, will often be in economics, and that at least carries some uh, required learning statistics. Do you think like having people do like masters in some science, you know, with st statistics heavy and then a law degree is like a, a fruitful professional combination? Yeah, very much so. I know that a, a friend of mine uh, took a, uh, a master's of science in epidemiology at Columbia University from the School of Public Health, the, the mailman. And um, she, you know, was greatly... Uh, uh, aided in her practice, which is a a pharmaceutical litigation practice, by being able to um, you know go head to head with other expert witnesses, and um, and I think that that firm I'm thinking of, I was actually with a partner in that firm for about two and a half years, has one other lawyer who has an MPH. Mm. So I think the MPH-JD combination can be a very fruitful and helpful combination of um, academic learning. Thank you. Um, the foreign comparison question. I mean, your specialty, your specialty presumably is American law and how the case system is working there, but the same issues of statistics, science, reproducibility you know, affect you know, Canada, England, you know, the European Union. Um, Japan, you know, Tibet. Um, do you have a sense of how these things are working in other legal systems? And I guess with the specific query, do they have any best practices there which America could usefully adopt? Good question. I think the, um, the differences in the legal systems are very significant. Uh, so in Europe, uh, cases are conducted in a completely different model. It's not an adversarial system as much as it's an inquisitorial justice system where the judge has much greater control over the proceedings, can call his or her own witnesses. Um, it, it ratchets down some of the adversarial zeal. Um, and because there is no jury involved. I think that the judge can proceed at a more leisurely pace. He can call uh, advisors on technical issues. So um, I'm not saying it always goes better in European courts, but I think that the process is significantly different. In the UK and Canada to a large extent as well, uh, civil cases do not get juries. They're tried by judges. And that has several institutional effects, one of which is that the judge will have to write an opinion. And with the help of law clerks or on his or her own, uh, will have to 
come to resolution of all the controverted issues. And I think that requires a lot more intellectual firepower uh, applied to the facts of the case. Um, I mean, I see judges struggling in the UK and Canada with this process, but I, I think that they're not as afraid of it. Um, I've written about um, at least one Canadian case, and as you know, I'm here now in Canada. Uh, I, I, I have uh, spoken at the University of Toronto about this one case that used a Bayesian analysis, and in my view, used it incorrectly. Um, and it went unseen by the trial judge, but that's because none of the parties raised it. Hmm. Interesting. So, but 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 so there's nothing particularly adaptable, you think, immediately to the American uh, no. system. No, I mean one of the most notorious cases for the uh, wrongful application of probabilistic thinking was uh, the case of Regina against Clark involved the prosecution of Sally Clark for the uh, uh, murder, alleged murder of her infant sons. And um, her defense was that it was a, a sudden infant death syndrome occurrence. Uh, the prosecution, the Crown, called uh, none less than one of the most famous uh, British pediatricians, Sir Roy Meadows. And what he did was he said, look, you know, the, the probability at random of uh, a family of this social strata experiencing a sudden infant death syndrome death is one in 7,500. This family uh, experienced two, and so he multiplied the one over 7,500 by itself and came up with a ridiculously small random match probability for the event. And of course, that was completely wrong because they're not independent uh, probabilities. Uh, they're very much conditioned on one another. There's the same environment. They could be the same kind of infection, the same kind of um, genetics. Um, and um, he was called out by uh, Peter Green, the uh, then head of the uh, Royal Statistical College in, in the UK, and ultimately the case was reversed, but not after uh, uh, Sally Clark had spent some time in prison, and uh, when she came out, you know, she uh, suffered immensely and ultimately uh, died very shortly after her release. Oh, so these kinds of um, abuses of uh, statistical and probability uh, occur in other countries. It's not just the United States. Hmm. Oh, dear. So I don't want to end the interview on that note because, boy, is that a downer. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, actually, all right. So, so, so I guess what do you think is, in the last few years, the single best cause for optimism about the future course of, you know, statistics, reproducibility, and the law. That, that's a better one to go for. Well, I think that the law is pretty much an empty vessel. It, it, it's filled up by science that is produced by scientists, and lawyers are not going to improve the process much, but I do see improvements 
in the scientific community itself. I think the standard of care has improved. It needs to be improved a great deal more. But I see the move towards what I call systematic reviews as taking hold. And, you know, we, we don't have the sheer reliance on opinion so much as careful systematic reviews with pre-specified questions and aims and qualified what kinds of studies will be considered and then a meta-analysis at the tail end of it if appropriate. And I think that there are now position statements on how to go about doing these systematic reviews from oh, the Cochrane collaboration, there are other position um, uh, papers on how best or best practices for the reporting of these systematic reviews and meta-analyses, and I think judges need to pay more attention to them and incorporate those scientific validity criteria into legal criteria. Yeah. So Is that yeah, it's upbeat. So the science is moving in the right direction, and with any luck, with the usual lag, the law and the judiciary will go along with it. Let's hope, and uh, eternal vigilance is required. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. Um, so thank you, NAS from NAS. Thank you, Nathan. Um, and I, you know, thank you, listeners, for joining Curriculum Vitae. Please share this podcast if you found it interesting and give us feedback by emailing us at contact at nas.org. I encourage you to read all about NES's work on making science more transparent and reproducible for the betterment of all our lives on our website at nas.org. Please also follow us on Twitter at nasorg and on Facebook. Thank you very much and goodbye, everyone. <laughs>